Support for this podcast comes from JCPenney. This holiday, our in-person gatherings may be a bit more intimate, and our virtual ones bigger than ever. But no matter how traditions change, what's most important is celebrating special moments with the people who matter most. JCPenney has all the best gifts all in one place, making it easy to send your warmest season's greetings to loved ones near and far. Looking for the perfect gifts for everyone on your list? We'll be back soon with some of our top gift picks. Joy, comfort, peace. JCPenney. Hello, everybody. I want to start by thanking you for tuning in today and wishing you a happy new year. I hope you have a wonderful 2019 uh might as well might as well give it a shot it's a any chance you have to get a reset in i think is a good time to take that opportunity and kind of reassess things in your life a little bit here's what i'm gonna do everybody new year's resolution for me who knows how long i'm gonna stick with this it might be a week might be a year i don't know but my my resolution for this podcast i'm gonna release an episode Every Monday. That's what we try to do anyway. It's just sometimes I'm late. Sometimes I've I've missed a couple weeks. It's something that I've already been getting better at. It's been getting more in line on a more regular basis. And it's just sometimes this podcast just kicks my butt. And it's a lot of work. And sometimes I just don't have it in me. And I'm overwhelmed with a million other things that I have going on. And I really want to dedicate myself to releasing this every Monday. It will, it will uh, have a positive uh, downstream effect on, on you guys, the listeners, tuning in and knowing that you can listen each Monday. And because uh, I know it's disappointing when you go to check it and it's not there in the day that you hope that it's there. But I'm trying. That means I'm going to have to improve a lot of other things in my life. So then it's it's going to make me more organized as a person because that means I got to get all the materials to the editor, Jimmy Fro. That means I need to have podcasts lined up in the bank so that if things go wrong, I can still, uh, if I fall behind on certain weeks, I can still have some episodes banked. That's a tremendous amount of work. Seems like an easy thing. A lot of work as I'm now in the fifth year of doing this podcast, uh, I've never been able to do that exactly keeping to a regiment of releasing one episode a week on a particular day. But that's the goal for 2019. Who knows? Even if I miss a week or two, I'm not going to let it discourage me. I'm just going to get back on that routine, that regiment, and keep trying to make it a regular part, and hopefully at least by the end of the year, by the last quarter of the year, it will be something that's just like clicking into place, and it will just be easy. It'll just be a a regular habit, a part of my life that I don't even need to think about. It just happens that way. That's the hope. What do you think? What are you guys doing for the New Year's? I I hope... uh, I, I hope you take time to make a small, uh, see, something like that. It's also small enough where it's like, it's tangible. It'll make me feel good. There'll be a reward that if it gets released on time each week. And it will create a lot less stress for uh, the other people working on this podcast. And so it's just a nice, accomplishable goal. And I hope you find something like that that uh, can make some positive changes in your life. Let's do it. 2019. Why not? Could be a great year. 
Who's to say that it won't be? I'm cautiously optimistic, everybody, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, I have past guest of Stand Up Science. Oh, man, crushed it. Knocked it out of the park at Stand Up Science. One of the, don't tell the other guests, one of the best guests that we've had on Stand Up Science so far, and I'm so lucky to get to sit down with, is it Piggott? It is Piggott. Pigott Family Professor of Marketing at the Foster School of Business and Chair of the Department of Marketing, Master of Space and Time, Mark Forehand, everybody. Oh, thank you so much for getting the Master of Space and Time in there. That's <laughs> it's a dream come true. Is it is that a competitive title? Uh, you know, it's a competition between uh, myself. <laughs> yeah. I seem to always come out on top. You're really just trying to beat your own record <laughs> Indeed. with space and time. Trying to get more of it, stretch it, pack as much in and as small of a space as you can and do everything everywhere all at once with nothing. Or expand it across uh, all dimensions. You know, the multiverse. I... That's why they call you the master, I guess. I guess so. Wow, that was very impressive. Um, all right, Mark. So you had... I, I, I don't know where you want to go with this because you had you had such a fantastic talk at Stand Up Science. I would love to get into some of that. Or or were you interested in talking about some of your other research? I'd be happy to talk about all of it, anything that you want to dig into. Well, we talked a lot about, uh, well, in our email correspondence and at the Stand Up Science show, we talked a lot about, um, oh, I always screw up. In my head, I see... IAT. That's right, right? In, in, it is the IAT. Uh, the implicit, implicit association test. Right, right, right. Oh, I always have to think about it a little bit. I'm getting there. One day, I'm going to implicitly know about the uh, implicit association test and be able to rattle it right off. Real smooth like butter, but we're not quite there yet, but you are. Tell us about... We've, we've, uh, we've talked about this on the show before, but... Uh, uh, this is we're heading into you're you're in year five now, and we probably we probably talked about this like once a year. So there's new listeners, there's old listeners that haven't heard about this stuff in a while. So let's set up a little one sure. for them. So the implicit association test was actually developed by a faculty member here at the University of Washington named Tony Greenwald, together with a couple of his students, uh, Mazu Banaji and Brian Nozick. And at its essence, what it is is a categorization task that an individual can do on a computer. And you're sorting words or images into categories. And the speed with which you can sort them into categories gives us some indication of how strongly they're associated with each other in memory. Uh, so when you have two concepts that are closely related, that share a response, people are able to do it very seamlessly. It takes no effort at all. It's a very simple task. When you have concepts which are disassociated, pairing those together makes the sorting task very difficult. People slow way down. They make more errors. And by tracking the speed with which people are able to sort those, you are able to determine whether or not they associate them at all and the degree to which they do. So that 
basic framework has been used quite a bit within psychology, particularly in the study of biases and prejudice, things where individuals would be loath to accurately report, or maybe they don't have the introspective access to know they possess. Uh, so we all tend to think of ourselves as being uh, completely fair-minded, not having prejudicial biases in our mind. But due to the exposures we see in the media or our own life experiences, we form these associations, and most of them are absolutely benign. Uh, we might uh, associate a color with a positive feeling, perhaps because of a sports team we cheered for or something like that. And so being that I'm from Minnesota, the color purple probably has more positive vibe for me than it would for most. Uh, but a lot of the biases that also, we have. Also, you probably like horns more than most people. Well, I try to hide them under my hair, uh, so they're <laughs> sure. not real noticeable. But yeah, no, I'm probably a big, a big uh, Viking horn is always going to get me happy, yeah. except when they lose. But in any case, the uh, the main takeaway of this is that when you apply it to biases, you can start to see associations that people might not be aware they have or don't want to admit they have. How? I have a question I wonder if you have an answer for. You probably do. Why not ask it? How how early have you started testing some of these biases on like how 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 much of this is I'm I'm going to ask uh what I've found to be kind of a silly question because I already know the answer. Is this environment? Is this genetic? The answer's always both. But how early do some of these associations take hold has that been tested in in uh, kids yeah associative learning starts in infancy uh, where we start to make associations the sound of a certain voice you know uh, whether it be a parent's voice or images you, you start to associate things immediately as soon as you have a cognitive apparatus you're making those connections in your mind uh, so you see a nipple and then you just grow fond of looking at mountains and you want to like plant a flag on top and that's your everything in life. You just picture like, I want to get to the top of that. And it's just because you had to suck on a nipple for food early on. I've never tested that specific IAT, <laughs> but I imagine if we put you behind the keyboard, Shane, you, you might have that. Uh, the uh, growth of it, though, over time is where they get strengthened. So while you start this associative process very, very early on in your life, over time, it's the repeated exposures to certain pairings which cause those associations to become stronger and stronger. Okay, so let's say, so we, we're all biased. We're just uh, pretty clearly, we're, we all have our, our biases. Probably, um, probably the people the least willing to admit that are are maybe the most biased but i think i think most people probably at least consciously or tell themselves and and tell others that they're trying to do good trying not to mm -hmm. and, and are treating others fairly i'm i'm sure i'm sure you would be uh, a listener would be shocked to um think of like a, a clansman or something like that and and take their perspective and i i'm sure they'd be like well i want the best for everybody but this is about uh, furthering you know this is it, the way in which it would be framed would be like a, about unity and uh, and there would be a lot of positive things involved so you can even go to your furthest most extreme most obviously biased to everybody and they they still would tell themselves at least deep down that they want to do good so now as we become aware of these biases um 
and and you can test yourself and be like, oh, look at that. I had these biases that I didn't realize about mountains and nipples or or worse things like uh, maybe skin color biases along the way. Is is there a way of creating space between um, uh, being kind of mindful of what our biases are and and working toward um, creating new perceptions so so we are eliminating some of those biases and i imagine there's biases that are quite useful in life as well oh absolutely the vast majority of them are useful and in fact we probably should avoid referring to these as biases and really think of them as associations Mm -hmm. so the bias the term bias has a pejorative sense to it that it's miscalibrated with reality in a negative way and we certainly have many of those uh but At its heart, these are associations that we have in memory, and most of those associations are very adaptive and helpful, Mm -hmm. all right? So associating a loud sound with something that should startle you. Now, that might not be a cognitive appraisal, but it's something that's useful, Uh, knowing that there are certain threats in your environment and getting those associations in mind can be very helpful to an individual as they navigate the world. So... Yeah, you want to step out of the way of the tree that's about to fall on you. You want to be hyper aware to that loud crunching sound. Yeah. So uh, the main thing that I would suggest is that when we introspect and you use something like an IAT to reveal those associations you have in memory, it gives you the ability to know where those potential hurdles are, where perhaps your belief system is miscalibrated with your associations. And if you have an association of a particular gender with science and you don't uh, actually believe that, for example, men should be more associated with science, uh, but you have that association, that gives you the ability then to manage that and realize that you have it. It doesn't make you sexist. Having a racial bias doesn't make you racist. That's a reference to the behaviors that you actually enact. Uh, This is simply a statement of what those precursors to behavior that you sometimes might have to overcome are. Mm -hmm. Uh, The other thing that I think the IAT in particular got a lot of pushback for is it being inappropriately referred to as the implicit attitude test. And while you can use the IAT to measure some of those positive-negative reactions to a certain concept, it's not necessarily the same thing as an attitude because an attitude implies – uh, something that is stable, that is believed, that a person would say both explicitly and implicitly. And really, this is not necessarily an attitude. It's simply an association, which could be reflective of an attitude, but you would want to avoid making that assumption. Hmm. Oh, consciousness is such a tricky <laughs> thing to figure. What I've been spending a lot of time thinking about lately is is how kind of the misunderstanding of of what our consciousness is doing because i think intuitively most of us think that what we are assessing in life what our consciousness is doing is aiming for this perfect version of reality this perfect representation of reality like this bullseye on a dartboard in the center is objective reality and that's what you're aiming for and anything that falls outside of that is is just a, a miss it's just well as the best it could do it was close is just a little off but oftentimes that dartboard's kind of an illusion and what's happening is that the brain has these all of these motivations for 
social situations, reproductive situations, uh, status, uh, survival. All uh, there's there's behind this kind of mirage of a dartboard. There's a bunch of little dartboards that you're actually aiming for all of the time, and a lot of times you are actually hitting marks that you don't realize that you're aiming for with consciousness. Is that an appropriate analogy, or should I scrap it right now? Uh, an analogy to the implicit association test and the the fact that our subjective yeah like, like versus the, our like the objective u- like evaluation? the usefulness of, of of some of these associations and and why they form in the first place and how they're used. Uh, so I'm trying to track the exact metaphor of the dartboard in this case to our perceptual <laughs> apparatus, and I'm having a little bit of trouble. But I, I think what I would say in the global is, yeah, we have all these biases in what we perceive, what we attend to, what our uh, – Should I just simplify? Sure. So everything in life, I make a decision about somebody. It should be perfect. I, I'm assessing perfectly, and when it falls short, it's it's – just a slight error i'm just a little bit off but oftentimes what you think you're assessing in what your unconscious processes are actually assessing are two very different things yeah no that's absolutely true there's an entire category of research called implicit cognition and what it broadly means is that there are things we see we attend to we realize they're there Uh, we just don't realize how they influence our subsequent judgments and evaluations and behaviors. So as I'm sitting across from you and I'm looking at your haircut, uh, perhaps your particular haircut elicits some beliefs in my mind and that influences the way I respond to you. Uh, I can see your hair. I know it's there. There's nothing hidden or embedded uh, about it, but I don't realize how that's triggering some specific thought in my head or how that is causing me to behave differently toward you. Mm-hmm. So there's a whole you branch. Might have, you might have had some old like Midwesterner friends back in the day that looked a little bit like didn't gel their hair and had this shaggy kind of Midwestern 70s show look to them or something like that. Maybe that's a positive association for you. It's like I'm looking in the mirror. <laughs> if, 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 you're, if you're from here, the, the West Coast where you're from, maybe, maybe you would have a completely different association. Yeah. Upon yeah. looking at the fa- same face, the same hair, and you're not making any other judgments you don't know anything else about me just based on that two different people are making completely different judgments on on what they're assessing about me yeah and we're obviously using a very benign characteristic right now like one's hairstyle but people do infer a lot about other people based on the way they dress based on the way that they carry themselves based on physical features and sometimes those get completely misapplied all right. And so that's when you get into racial distinctions and people starting to infer characteristics based on melanin count that has no correlation with what they're actually inferring. Now, sometimes people are doing that consciously, where they consciously appraise someone differently on the basis of their race or their gender or any of a number of other demographic characteristics. But more often, it happens at a non-conscious level. And that's where these associations can be most insidious. Support for this podcast comes from Wild Turkey Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. Let's tune in to their one-on-one with Jamal, a real bartender from Old Fourth Ward in Atlanta. I really get into the backstory of whatever I'm pouring. Out of respect, there are literally years of experience behind these bottles. Wild Turkey, same recipe since 1942. If you want a true classic, this is what you want to order. Wild Turkey. Wild Turkey Distilling Company, Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. Copyright 2020, Campari, American, New York, New York. Never compromise, drink responsibly. 
Support for this podcast comes from CDW and Hewlett Packard Enterprise. At CDW, we get modern servers need to be flexible, flexible, scalable, and predictable. I predicted you'd say that. Okay, what would I say next? Probably something about server security. Impressive and freaky. CDW can implement secure Hewlett Packard Enterprise Gen 10 servers that improve speed and performance while reducing while reducing costs. See predictable. IT orchestration by CDW. People who get it. I predict a web address. CDW.com slash HPE. I'm in your mind, man. So you and I walked in in here together. We just had uh, lunch at a Thai place, and then we uh, drove. And I, I'm walking in the university, and and there has to be aspects in my mind of like, where where is my place in this new environment that I'm in? This new restaurant, this new campus that I'm in. Do I belong here? I don't have an education. What do what do, are there people my age, my gender? Um, my sexuality, like, like, even if there aren't, that's not not saying that's a good or a bad thing. If there are, aren't, but I still need to kind of assess my my place in my environment, and so I'm looking for these differences. Yeah, so that's uh, actually a great segue into a broad branch of the research that I've done throughout my career, which is on identity. So it's how you define yourself. And what you were just describing is one of the classic ways we do that, which is looking at our social environment. And on the basis of what we see in our social environment, having different aspects of our own identity become salient to us. Uh, so this was originally done by a psychologist named McGuire. I uh, termed it distinctiveness. And the basic idea was very simple. Whatever makes you distinctive in your environment will be more salient to you. So uh, if you walk into a room where there are 99 other people and they all share one characteristic with you, but they don't share another, it's that not shared characteristic, which is going to be salient. So in my case, if I walk into a room with 99 African-American men, I'm going to be very conscious of the fact that I'm Caucasian, but the fact that I'm male won't occur to me at all. Mm-hmm. And if it's 99 Caucasian women, the fact that I'm Caucasian won't be salient to me, but the fact that I'm a man will be very salient to me. Uh, So on that basis, you see people thinking about themselves in very different ways depending on who they are with. Mm -hmm. And they don't choose to do so. So it's not like I walk into that room choosing to think of myself on one dimension or the other. It's simply that that aspect of who I am, that one dimension of identity comes to the fore because of that context. Mm -hmm. And there's certainly a lot of unfortunate uh, and and consciously kind of unwanted uh, outcomes of that. But imagine a world where this didn't happen. This would this would be far more dangerous. If you, I mean, you you go, you look at yourself in the mirror, and ninety nine point nine 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 percent of your body, your skin, is not a little mole on you. But you probably notice that one little part that is the mole because what's going on there? Is that cancer? Is that something that I need to be concerned with? And we all just looking in the mirror, we're looking for differences in things. When we're walking down a a sidewalk, uh, most of the sidewalk, you don't really have to pay much of a any attention to but that little bit of sidewalk that's a little different and the and the uh, uh the crack is coming up from it that you might trip over that's something that you do want to be really aware of even though that is kind of the my uh, the minority of the uh, of the uh, of the visual um perception yeah and one where you see it most 
if you think of it from an evolutionary perspective or a cultural perspective, is in groups, out groups. Mm-hmm. We have always tried to categorize, and that's part of learning. And when we apply that to social structures, we're looking for members of our tribe and another tribe. And I use the term tribe not literally, but just in terms of people who are similar or dissimilar. Uh, so when we see individuals who are similar that are part of our in-group, uh, you know, that's supposed to be a safe environment. And when it's dissimilar, that's perhaps an unsafe environment. Now, I don't mean that literally again, but I think that was the basis by which a lot of those formations started to occur. So when we look at the basis for why we think of ourselves in a particular dimension, it is uncomfortable for people to be in that minority status. Uh, and we've all had that experience, some much more than others. As a, a white male, I have it much less frequently than a lot of other people do. Uh, but if you go into a particular career path where you're the only woman in the room in that career path, that gender element is going to be much more salient to you. If you are of a minority status and you're living in an area where there are very few individuals of your cultural heritage, that cultural heritage will be much more salient to you than it would be if you were in an area where that was not at all distinctive. So there's a very natural basis for that. Uh, but where a lot of identity research has broadened from just that social distinctiveness is trying to understand the other times a specific dimension of your identity will become salient and what triggers that. And then how does that influence the way you process information around you? Hmm. So how do you study this? Well, so there are a lot of different approaches to it. You'll see individuals in anthropology or sociology look at it at a more macro level. Uh, I come from a more social psychological perspective or cognitive perspective. And as a result, I'll tend to do this with experiments where we'll manipulate whether people are exposed to one cue or another that is intended to elicit some dimension of identity. Uh, and then look at how that changes the response to in my case, advertising or persuasive communications that feature similar or dissimilar others, uh, or how threatening the individual on a particular dimension uh, will change the way they think about themselves. Uh, so some research will introduce negative information about an identity membership you have. And then say, well, is the person more likely to consume products connected to that identity now or less likely to consume products related to that identity, given that it has been framed negatively? Mm. And what do you find? What do you find? Uh, well, so there are a lot of different projects that have investigated this. I think the broad base that I would argue is that there are two types of threats that you see. There are threats where you're challenging one's membership in that group. And there are other threats where you're challenging whether or not that's a positive group to be a member of. Mm-hmm. So uh, if I were to turn to you, Shane, and say, you know, men are not as cognitively quick as women. They're not as adaptive. Uh, they tend to score uh, less well on all sorts of academic indicators of future success. And I give you all sorts of negative information about the male gender. And then I give you an opportunity to consume products that are related to the gender or not related to the gender. What you generally find is that individuals will shy away from those products which are related to your gender. Mm -hmm. If, on the other hand, I challenge your status within that membership. So I say, Shane, you're a poor excuse for a man. (laughs) (laughs) 
Thank you. You're very welcome. <laughs> so if I if I throw that out, what? Listen, usually it's me in the mirror having to say that to myself each day, and I'm just finally someone had the balls to tell me what I deserve to hear. <laughs> oh, there, there, there's no deserving here. But uh, but if I were to say that, yeah. completely hypothetically, sure. if I if I were to say that, uh, what you would often find is you would look for ways to reassert. Your masculinity. You would look for ways to try and demonstrate that you are not uh, outside this membership and that you wanted to reestablish it. So you go, guys are kind of cognitively a little slow. Here's a bunch of reasons why. Here's a bunch of facts for you. And, and, and you know, if you're a guy, you're probably a little too slow to understand these facts, but just take our word for it. You're a guy, you're kind of slow. So I'm going to be like, well, I'm going to stay away from that monster truck that has a negative identity. But now when I'm feeling like less of a man, I want that monster truck. Yeah, you're going to look for ways to reassert. And it also starts to get into how we signal. Why, why I, this is not the first time I've used monster trucks as an example <laughs> on the show either. I, I, I don't Itching know. and scratching, digging for traction? <laughs> Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's just when I think about like the, the archetype of like a manly thing, it's monster trucks. Yeah, I mean, you can get into all sorts of trouble uh, stating, stating emphatically anything that is gender typed. Sure. But sure. yeah, in, in your own mind, if that is the epitome of masculinity, right. yeah, that's something that you would be drawn to. Mm. Huh. So I, I have to, one, we can, we can go any direction you'd like, but I want to make sure uh, as we're, as we're talking about man and manly things, sports have sometimes traditionally been manly things. We're talking about in group, out group. You mentioned the Vikings. Um, you've, uh, and now there's all this hubbub these days about our, our certain mascots, uh, racist or, or are they insensitive to different cultures? Uh, that, my understanding is there's some new hockey mascot that is also just people are just mad because it's a stupid, seeming mascot <laughs> is that have you seen this hockey mascot i, I haven't on, seen this one no. i saw it on like last week to, it's just like some big goofy <laughs> i don't know I, it's some there's some big goofy hockey mascot out there that's all the hubbub um but i i can't say anything further about it because i don't uh i don't know but i do know uh there, there's been uh as, as someone who is detached from sports and is kind of indifferent from the conversation um i i've i'm not super familiar so excuse me if the, is there still a cleveland indians is that still a, a there thing is. that exists yeah. okay chief and wahoo chief wahoo <laughs> Wow. Yeah. I mean it does sound into the, in 2018 it does it is a little bit yeah. like that's a bit that seems like a bit much to it me. It does indeed. <laughs> yeah, no the uh the interesting thing uh so this connects into research that uh I did with a number of individuals uh Justin Angle, Terry Socanti, Dagogo Jack. Uh, and Andy Perkins, uh, all former students here at the University of Washington who have spread out to other universities. But we investigated what effect the use of Native American mascots has on individuals in the general broader community. Mm -hmm. And I should start this with saying that there is a ton of research on the negative consequences of the use of Native American mascots on individuals who are themselves Native Americans. Uh, not all Native Americans perceive it to be negative. 
Uh, and so if you look at surveys, there are often a lot of individuals who are of Native American ancestry who actually like the use of mascots. But the research has demonstrated some pretty pernicious effects of this on adolescents and how they're perceiving themselves, et cetera. And on that basis alone, I think you can make a very strong case for just not using Native American mascots at all. But one of the elements that often gets argued for avoiding Native American mascots is their effect on the broader community and how it changes our beliefs about Native Americans. And so the research that we did looked at that second issue. So we weren't so much focused on how does this affect Native Americans directly, but how does it affect the way other people think about Native Americans? Uh, and the short version is what we found is that exposure to Chief Wahoo and the Cleveland Indians or the Atlanta Braves imagery or the Washington Redskins imagery and these types of uh, logos Redskins and mascots. Still a, a, is oh, that yeah. still a thing? It's All these thing. are wait, okay. So it's the Redskins. It's the Indian. What? What's the other one? Uh, Braves. The Braves. Then yeah. the Braves are still okay. Uh, and there oh, wasn't there wasn't there weren't they. Weren't they voting? Or I don't know. I remember seeing something about the Washington Redskins in the news. Have we- yeah, no, there's been a ton of coverage of it because a lot of people feel that that particular one not only has these potential negative effects of just mascot use, but the name itself is very pejorative, right? And it's basically a slur towards that group. Now, again, some people disagree. Uh, if you look at individuals in that metropolitan area, they're much more receptive to it. The owner of the franchise wants to keep that. And so it's been a back and forth debate. But what we tried to do is separate some of the the politics of it and just Mm -hmm. look at how beliefs change when you see those. And Mm -hmm. so we didn't initially use any of those mascots in the experiments. But what we did do is we'd expose people to uh, basically, I would call it a generic Native American mascot with a headdress relative to an animal. And then look at how that exposure would then change people's responses to Native Americans on an implicit association test. So in the first case, it was how strongly do you associate Native Americans with the concept of warlike? And what we found was that exposure to uh, the mascots did start to increase the relationship of the mascot or Native Americans with warlike. Uh, but oddly, only with our more liberal respondents. So if we looked at conservatives and liberals just in the uh, control condition, conservatives tended to associate Native Americans slightly more with warlike than did liberals. So there was a little bit of a, a difference there, but not a major one. It wasn't hugely statistically significant. But when we then exposed them to this imagery and had them do the test, what we found is that liberals became more likely to associate warlike with Native Americans and did so more strongly, whereas the conservatives tended not to change at all. And the argument for why this occurs goes back to research by Jonathan Haidt, uh, John Jost, and others that's found that uh, liberals tend to be more malleable. They tend to shift more on the basis of new information than do conservatives in general. And while we can often construe that as being a positive thing, uh, in certain situations, that's a negative thing. And in this case, what it uh, elicited was a tendency to shift those perceptions more readily on the basis of those exposures. Mm. So that was the first uh, experiment in the study. We then tried to reverse that and say, well, can we shift people in a positive direction too? So we added in a slogan that is something along the lines of, we are noble, we compete with honor. 
trying to create this more positive set of associations because one of the arguments that's been made for the use of Native American mascots is that they're actually very respectful and that the people who are protesting against them don't understand what the real intention is here. And this is meant to be a very positive symbol. So we said, all right, well, let's try this out in its most positive form. And what we again found was that that overall argument doesn't tend to change people's perceptions in the abstract. So conservatives didn't start thinking more positively about Native Americans having seen that nobility phrase, but liberals did. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so you again see this malleability coming to four, but in this case happening more in a positive dimension as opposed to a negative. During stand-up science, we kind of had a little bit of a discussion at the end about like, is there, because these are kind of two sides of, of a coin, there's there's always going to be some people that are a little more malleable and some people that are a little more uh, rigid in their uh, um, in their thinking. I guess would you say rigid? Uh, mm-hmm. uh, um, but is there is there? I mean, is there a true like real uh, positive? Are there large benefits to being a rigid person, or is that just kind of the default state of of farming patterns? Mm-hmm. And the brain doesn't want to necessarily. Oh, it's an efficiency-based pattern recognition machine, and if there's, uh, and if what's working works, what you know, why, why seek out new information and be flexible? But is there? I mean, I guess if you're really malleable, you're you could be like a little flaky or something in your beliefs. Maybe not as dependent. Maybe if you're more rigid, you're more more stable or dependable or or something like that. Is there? I I know that scientists don't like to say like a, a better or worse or anything like that but is there is i can see what the pro is to being malleable as i myself am a very malleable kind of flexible person so i imagine i'm pretty biased toward uh toward more rigid people that don't want to change their ways but is there uh and and this is kind of outside of your 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 field a bit but do you people that aren't going to change their mind when they're influenced but maybe those people aren't going to be influenced by like marketing kind of uh influences Hmm. or something like that i don't know is there any benefit to being rigid well as you said this is a little bit outside of my field which rarely stops me from pontificating and coming up with something but uh i don't know the research in terms of the the social benefits and costs of those different types of worldview perspectives. Uh, I think you're hitting on my intuition anyway, is that, yeah, there are some benefits to being a little bit more rigid in that uh, you're going to see more stability and predictive uh, behavior from those individuals or predictable behavior. Uh, I think the the question that you're always sort of underlying that uh, asking is how do others perceive us? And how do others model themselves around us? And if you are, you know, I believed in A and I continue to believe in A no matter what happens, you know, well, it's going to be easy to deal with me in some ways or to not deal with me. Um, But I don't have a good informed scientific answer to what the real benefits trade-offs there are. Hmm. 
seems like just a little bit of a default but but even if even if you took out say say you're categorizing half the people as rigid and half the people as malleable and you and you take out all of the rigid people out now you just have a new category of where there's half rigid half malleable again so yeah um all right. Well, well, and one thing I would throw in there too is when I talk about the uh, study that we did with mascots, and I talk about mm-hmm. liberals, conservatives, and this difference. Uh, one thing I should also point out is it's just a correlation. So uh, when you look at conservatives, there are highly malleable conservatives, mm-hmm. and there are highly rigid liberals. So these are distributions, mm-hmm. and so it's not the case that all liberals are A and all conservatives are B. I mean, there's a lot of both. On average, liberals tend to be a little bit more malleable mm-hmm. and a little bit more receptive to new information and a little bit less uh, tied to prior belief structures. But again, it's you know on average, not anything that's universal. Hmm. Um, all right. Well, now is time for a little bit of me search. I saw some of your work that I that caught my eye specifically because it can benefit me <laughs> and my my not not that all of this can't benefit me and everybody else, but this is very particular to what I'm doing right now, putting together my stand up science show. One of the things that I'm going to be doing in 2019 is trying to. Um, form kind of cross-promotional partnerships with various organizations, maybe universities, maybe science outreach groups, what have you, in various regions. And you uh, have have something that caught my eye called Riding Coattails, When Co-Branding Helps Versus Hurts Less Known Brands. And I went to click on it, and I couldn't. So now I get to ask you about it in person. Well, uh, that was research that I did with a former colleague uh, named Marcus Cunha, who's now at the University of Georgia. And like all good research, the genesis for it was an argument in a bar <laughs> where he and I were debating nerdy topics. And in this particular case, uh, he's a cognitive psychologist who does a lot of work on something called associative learning. And uh, my main uh, course that I teach is on branding. And the reason we got into an argument is that uh, there are very different perspectives on how co-branding works. And the the standard belief within the branding literature and the types of stuff that I teach in my class is that if you have a high equity, a really well-known, well-liked brand and a low equity or not real well-known or not real well-liked brand and they partner together – the lower equity brand is going to benefit from that partnership a lot more than the high equity brand is. They're basically going to start to come up towards the quality perceptions of the high equity brand. And what Marcus argued uh, was that, well, no, by associative learning, if you have two partners developing some outcome, the more known entity is going to get more credit for what happens. Uh, they're going to get more of the credit for any successes that this co-branded relationship produces. And I'm sure, as everyone always does, whenever you get into an argument like that in the bar, the best way to resolve it is to run a series of experiments over the course of years. I thought you were going to say fist fight, but okay. Well, you know, we do that on our spare time. So with this one, the more professional route. And uh, so we ran a long series of experiments. And and the big takeaway uh, was that 
Uh, we were both right, but in fairness, he was more right than I was, <laughs> which is not the same as saying I was wrong. Uh, sure, <laughs> sure. Partially wrong. No, what we found was it totally depended on how this new partnership was presented. And so if we presented it in a vacuum with no information about exactly what they did or what the outcomes so were. So what, what did you do? What were the, what oh, were the methods? Oh, yeah, sorry. Uh, so in this particular case, we were looking at a hypothetical new serial that was being introduced. And we uh, presented it with a fictitious brand no one had heard of called Prime Foods. And then that... Ooh, yeah, yum. Yeah. Can't get enough Prime. Uh, it's not just a number. Anyway, so the... Uh, was that a slogan that you used? Are we, can I get in on this new business that you guys founded? Uh, yeah. uh, no, that was not the slogan. But uh, so... What we did in uh, these studies is we presented people with this new cereal that was being produced by Kellogg's and this new fictional brand called Prime. And then we either presented them with a bunch of outcome information about how much fiber it had and other details about it that were quantitative, or we just presented it in the abstract. And when we presented it in the abstract, where we just said, hey, they're getting together, they're producing a new cereal together, and we didn't give them any outcome information, then the lower equity brand did start to be perceived better on the basis of its partnership with Kellogg's. Mm. Kellogg's was seen as an endorser of this new brand. People like Prime more than if they had produced this product on their own. Mm. But if we gave them outcome information, we said, hey, it's got this great fiber content and it's going to help you in all these wonderful ways. When we presented that to them, now people said, oh, well, that's great. And Kellogg's is doing a great job. And they gave all the credit to Kellogg's. Mm. So, you know, the, the net effect is that when you have a low equity and a high equity brand in the uh, sort of abstract where there's no detail, it helps the low equity brand. But when you gave them lots of detail and gave consumers a lot of information about what the outcome was, then the low equity brand tended to be dismissed and got overshadowed by the quality of the high equity brand. Mm. My last tour was a show about psychedelics called The Good Trip, and a research organization, the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, that I had a couple of them on my podcast, and then they saw the show and believed in what I was what I was doing, and they started a cross promotional thing where they basically just sent out an email to their their people to mm -hmm. promote my tour and i promoted them on the show mentioned them and had like brochures afterwards and it was it seemed really beneficial and it was this nice like stamp of approval even if people didn't know the, that organization it was like oh okay this person is uh, legit they like know what they're talking about they have a stamp of approval from an organization and i think that would be beneficial with my new show as well which is why i ask if you have any thoughts on that from your research so that's a different situation so that i would qualify as endorsements so each mm -hmm. group is endorsing the other yeah. And their uh, patrons, their fans, their followers, however you want to describe it, take that endorsement and say, oh, all right, there's added credibility to this other group now on I the see. basis of that. If the two entities got together and said, let's do a show jointly, all right, and you're perhaps better known, I see. they would benefit more from that than you would. Uh, if somehow we quantified the total humor count in the show and gave them some metric, I don't know how you would do this, but if you did, that's when that other effect would kick in. You've never heard of a laugh-o-meter? <laughs> a very dependable scientific tool. Yeah, that explains why my courses go so poorly. <laughs> <laughs> so um, 
I, I think the really important thing that I want to stress to people is one, I think people will be really interested. If listeners haven't already, they probably want to take a look at these uh, IAT tests, implicit association tests. They probably want to take a peek. Is, uh, is there just a billion of them online? How do you know if, if you're doing a good one or if it's just some thing off Facebook? Or Well, there's a website called Project Implicit, Project uh, which, Implicit. which okay. is managed by the individuals I mentioned earlier. And it's a great uh, sort of clearinghouse for a ton of different IITs that are up there. Some of them they just have up so you can take a basic test on perhaps a racial bias or a political affiliation bias or something like this. But they also have lots of IITs that are up that are for research purposes. And so if anyone's interested in just sort of seeing how strongly they associate different concepts in memory, I highly recommend you go onto that website, take a look through. There are all sorts of different ones that you could potentially take. And, you know, again, what you're probably going to find is that in many cases, you don't have any strong association one way or the other, but you will on certain dimensions that you might not have expected. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they often go counter to what you would have assumed. Mm -hmm. So... Someone goes on, they take a test. I've taken these tests. I look, I go, oh, goodness, I'm racist. Uh, Had a feeling I probably was, grew up around a bunch of whiteies, and and look, I have this implicit association, um, and, and... but I, my, I sure like to think of myself as a good guy. I try to promote diversity as much as I can on my podcast and 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 uh, in my social media life and in my voting and amongst my peer group and and as much as I can. So I, you know, I don't, I don't want to think this about myself. But I know there's some biases there. What what do people make of a? What what do people do? They they go on. They take an AI. IAT test, and then afterwards, what do you do with that information? Uh, Well, you could do lots of things. I mean, what I always recommend is just becoming aware of what those associations are that you have in memory, Mm -hmm. Uh, getting a sense of where there's a uh, dissociation between your explicit beliefs and your implicit associations. Uh, That helps you know how you need to be more self-aware. So... You know, whatever those biases may be, you know, again, sometimes you might find out that, for example, you're a strong uh, Republican or you're a strong Democrat and you very strongly associate with that political party. And then you take an IAT that's political and you come out like, look, I think I like Republicans more than Democrats or vice versa. Mm -hmm. That's not necessarily a bias that you would find surprising. You explicitly believe that. You have more friends. You agree with the policies of one group more than another. And as a result, you're like, oh, that's fine. Yeah. But there might be some where you find that, oh, but I don't actually believe that. And that's an indication that there's been something in the media environment where maybe you watch a lot of movies or TVs and a disproportionate number of the criminals are portrayed as being African-American. And all of a sudden you have a violence association with African-Americans and it's based solely on watching too much crime drama or something along those lines. Being aware that you might have those associations that don't match up with what you explicitly believe can be very powerful. Mm. Okay, well, I have my guests each week plug a charity of their choice. Which would you like to plug? 
Uh, my choice would be Doctors Without Borders, Medicine Sans Frontiers. Uh, awesome. They've uh, gotten plugs before. They're a really cool organization. Yeah, well, they should get plugged. I mean, it's when we did research into what organizations we wanted to support, one of the things that drew us to them uh, was the rate at which the donations are used uh-huh. as opposed to just being funneled into additional fundraising efforts. Right. And there's a very high return and effectiveness in those donations. Mm, that's wonderful. Um, all right, so... We just talked briefly off the air beforehand about the future and and about about robots potentially putting everyone out of work. And I'm not don't worry, I'm not going to ask you questions about this. I know it's not your field, but the future I do like hearing about it. What are you excited to do um, with with what you've learned and furthering your research in the future? What what are you what are you kind of working on now? If you can give people a little a little teaser to some stuff that's maybe not published yet, and uh, what are you looking forward to in the future once once you uh, you know have have more technology resources at your disposal? Well, there's the the short run answer to that question. There's the long run. The short run probably isn't particularly exciting. Um, it's an extension of a lot of the work that I have done. So I think the big direction that a lot of research and identity is moving is into multiple, multiple identities or identity management. So most of the research that we've seen in academics has tended to look at a single identity. All right. And if we activate that identity, we see people trying to pursue it. And if we threaten that identity, maybe they move away from it. And what I think uh, a lot of the new research is trying to do is look at how activation of one identity influences our other identities and how that uh, can shift things around. And so there's a number of projects that I have that are looking at those drivers. And I'd say the big takeaway there is that uh, when you activate one identity, you sometimes feel like you're cheating on some of your others. Uh, this is particularly true with individuals who might be biracial uh, and they want to embody both of their heritage, uh, pieces of heritage. And so if all of a sudden they're doing some activities that are really strongly aligned with one of their heritages, they will often feel a need to reassert the other one, to keep those in balance. And so there's some really interesting research that's coming up in that area. Uh, if you go... Uh, much more long-term, uh, I think it is all about robot overlords, and I haven't really perfected my my research in that domain, so I can't uh, speak to it too. <laughs> well, I imagine they're going to have their own biases <laughs> everything else, so we're going to need to be – hopefully we can program them to be biased toward humans, <laughs> pro-humans, and we can be nice little pets for them. I yeah. can't wait to be a robot pet. Oh, it's got to be nice. <laughs> Just sit around with my robot stroking me. That's how I imagine it happening. <laughs> now I have a Muppet <laughs> show playing in my head again when there's dartboards. It's uh, the whole... Uh, stroking wasn't the right word. Uh, yeah, I was going to say that was... was uh, like, I, I meant petting. <laughs> yes. I meant well, petting. Heavy, of course. Heavy yes. petting. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess that's... See, you went there. I didn't. I was thinking the much more innocent... Uh, <laughs> just, just like you I'm would, just following like your you lead. Pet. Sure, sure. All right. It, here, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna clean it up. I'm gonna, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get this this train back on tracks. Train on track. Yeah, that's an expression. Um, it is now. It is now. Uh, there's been a lot of division lately. I don't, I don't know if you've 
picked up on this at all. I don't know if you no. You have, I've you heard have, an you inkling just, once or twice. You have no idea what I'm talking yeah. about. Fair enough. Well, like it just seems like somewhere around the, the last couple of years, people have been very, very divided politically, and I guess my frustration is. Um, as much as I think the the term like fake news is a, is a bunch of dangerous nonsense, there is a little truth in that that the news isn't necessarily representative of reality, and they're sensationalizing these uh, these statistical anomalies for ratings, and just trying to scare people into their whatever their particular identity that watches whatever the i the twenty four seven particular news channel is catering for and it it seems like people do have i don't know if it's always been like this or if i'm noticing it more now or if i'm reaching a certain age but it does it seems like people have a harder time than i remember of just reaching across the table and like hanging out with like having a, a friend that belongs to a different political party <laughs> you know and that and this growing up that didn't that was never a thing like I, I was i never even when i cared about politics i was never like oh i wonder what political party this friend of mine and that's a big determining factor on whether i want to be friends with this person and now i feel like it, it it's getting to be that way more and more with people of all ages it seems if people genuinely did want to start reaching across the table and taking different perspectives and maybe um, uh, not responding so uh, um, it's even if it's rational when I usually if I get like really upset about something I tweet like some political thing I'm almost always if not embarrassed by what I tweeted after the fact at least it was like well, it was my reaction was disproportionate to what was actually happening. And so how can people try to understand others that other people that maybe they don't even like that much, but but they want to try to uh, reach across the table and, and and communicate with people that aren't necessarily in their tribe, in their in-group. What do you do? It's a great question, uh, and I wish I had a simple answer that everyone could uh, immediately implement, and that conversation would be easier. Um, I'm not a political scientist, so you know you should take everything I say here but with a you heavy. Love speculating. I do love speculating. So. I'm I'm intoxicated by it. But what I would argue from an identity perspective, which is where my research is, uh, is that we have changed the discourse where it has become much more important to signal your membership in Team Red or Team Blue. And I heard a a report a few months back where they were talking about just general political views and the correlation between them. And the thing that was very fascinating to me was that they said, you know, people have had really strong opinions on abortion and gun control and taxation policy and international interventions and conflicts for Decades and decades and decades, right? Going back 50 years, people have had strong opinions. What's changed in the more recent political arena is how correlated those beliefs are. So it used to be that you had individuals that were, you know, very much pro-life and against abortion, but they were also very pro-union. 
All right. And they felt like progressive taxation was a good thing, mm-hmm. but they wanted a strong military. Right. So they, they had this basket of beliefs mm-hmm. and it was fine to have those beliefs. And if they happened to talk to someone, perhaps in the pro-life, pro-choice debate who was on the other side, they would still get animated and it was a big deal to them. What's changed is now people sort of start with the political affiliation and then it's here's what you are supposed to believe. Right. If you're on Team Blue, here's the 10 things you believe. Here, Team Red, here's the 10 things you believe. And that makes the ability to cross over and have those conversations that much more difficult because yeah. there's no shared ground. Right. I've never, that's what I've never understood. I've never, even like just voting for a person. I, I like you. It seems like I'm, I'm sure we get along just great. I'm sure we have, if I were to vote for you, I'm sure that there would be things about your beliefs that I don't agree with. And I don't, I don't get the idea of just everyone like, yep, I'm all that one, <laughs> whatever that one person's beliefs are, all those are mine now. I, I don't get that. Yeah. Well, it's easy. I mean, so the the reason it happens is if you want to signal strongly you're a member of any identity group. So think of this not in terms of politics. Think of it in terms of you're a big fan of a sports franchise. All right. And so what do you do to signal? Well, you become knowledgeable about the players. You buy gear, which signals to other people that you are part of that tribe. Uh, you suddenly have to dislike that competing franchise that is in opposition or the big rival. Right. And so you, you develop all of these ways of identifying. And if you do that same thing in a political thing, then that other becomes even more of an outsider. And I think the other facts that sort of make this problematic is that we're becoming much more geographically separated from the other schools of thought. And so you use the example of, well, it used to be if you had a friend uh, you know, and you disagreed, it was, well, whatever, you disagreed. It wasn't like a big deal. Well, it's becoming less and less likely that people have that friend. Mm-hmm. And they're much more likely to only be around individuals who think like they think and believe what they believe. Mm. Purple Party? Purple Party. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> America 2.0, 2020, Purple Party. Well, every place is purple. Yeah. It's just which shade of purple is it? Ah, that was that was, that was a, a great slogan for purple. <laughs> you could really sell colors and numbers <laughs> really well, slogan, man. Purple wasn't getting enough attention, and now they are. Um, yeah, well, that's. I think that's uh, that's a wonderful way to end. Thank you for for joining me, and thanks for sharing your my pleasure to be here research. And thank you, listeners, for being such a wonderful, curious people. We'll talk with you next week. Hey, everybody! It's Elaine Welteroth, and I'm hosting a new podcast called Built to Last by American Express, where we will dive deep into the stories, history, and continued legacy of small businesses that shape American culture. Our debut season will focus on Black-owned small businesses that need our support now more than ever. In each episode, we feature the story of a Black business trailblazer that has inspired a modern Black-owned business. First up is Pinky Cole of Atlanta's food truck turned restaurant, Saletti Vegan. We'll also chat with Anifa Muemba, the cutting-edge designer behind the Hanifa 3D digital fashion show. Plus, we'll check in with Issa Rae, our modern-day Renaissance woman. We hope that it encourages all of our listeners to support these businesses as well as the Black-owned businesses in your own communities. 
Tune in for these amazing stories and others on Spotify, Apple, YouTube, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. It's JCPenney here, back with some great gift ideas for everyone on your list. And they're all available now at your local JCPenney or online. Need gifts for her? Check out our selection of diamond jewelry that's sure to put a sparkle in her eye. Or help her cozy up at home with pajama separates and super soft slippers. For him, try JCPenney's grooming products, like shave sets and trimmers. Or compliment his style with smart flannels and jeans from brands like Arizona, Levi's, and more. Also, stop by Sephora inside JCPenney to find top fragrances for both him and her. For the kids, shop this year's must-have toys and games for all ages. Or bring smiles to all with matching sleepwear sets for the whole family. And for everyone else on your list, share some warmth with a heated blanket, an ultra-cozy scarf, or let them decide with a gift card. There are so many ways to share the joy this holiday season, and so many ways to shop JCPenney. Visit a store near you, pick up curbside, or go to jcp.com. Joy, comfort, peace. JCPenney. Next week on the podcast, I'm in Madison, talking with Heather Kikorian, talking about child development and media, and how your uh, kids are affected by the tablets out there, and at what age they understand certain aspects about what's real and what's not um, when it comes to media and, and understanding that, that the screen's a representation of something real in, in some cases and other cases it's it's uh, you know a cartoon or something from our imagination is is uh, is this gonna is technology gonna ruin our children? There's a lot of a lot of people have big concerns, rightfully so. It's your kids, you want them to have a good life, and uh, you know from experience that these things can be addictive. So we sit down and talk all about that. It's a really fantastic episode. I think you know obviously this is maybe not obviously, but to me obviously this is a topic that uh, hits home for a lot of people. Of course it does for you. We're talking about media. You're listening to a podcast right now. Why wouldn't you tune in? You would, and you're going to. Thanks so much for all the reviews and uh, for joining on Patreon. You know, maybe another second resolution, not to overwhelm myself, because you get too many of those New Year's resolutions on that list, and things are going to fall apart in a hurry. And you're going you're gonna to be hard on yourself if you're me, and, uh, and it just... It doesn't help anything. So, but another new one, I think I'll try to release more podcasts on the Patreon, just one a month. If I could do one a month, it's it's hard. Just adding another thing on in my life is really hard. But I did enjoy, when I was doing that at the start of last year, I enjoyed making them. It was just finding the time to do it and sticking to it was really, really hard. But maybe, uh, maybe a new year, I'm uh, feeling optimistic. Maybe I can get that positive trend going as well so uh follow me on there uh donate on patreon and that will encourage me to uh to put more stuff out there as well and uh those of you that listen all the way to the end you are of course my favorite i almost forgot to mention stand-up science my goodness the biggest undertaking of my entire career please go to my website shanemoss.com check out stand-up science there's more dates than i you know i've been listing the dates i'll let you off the hook this week but i'm adding more dates all the time so please check it out and i'll talk with you next week Keep my head underground I keep my
Outro music today provided by Hello Luna. Those of you that listen all the way to the end, you are, of course, my favorite.
I still got fight.